That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 486 with my guest, Dr. Shelley Jane. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at. Um, I want to kick things off. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention uh, last week that uh, the tests that uh, my girlfriend and I both took, uh, the virus tests, came back negative. She had something a couple of weeks ago that uh, was... Not dissimilar to it, uh, you know, uh, so we worried that, that she had it, we, uh, eh, semi-isolated, and, but I got myself tested too, and uh, we're both happy that it came back negative. Um, oh my God, I have been, I bought a mixer, a stand mixer, and I've been making pizza dough. I saw this video on YouTube of somebody making a pizza in a cast iron skillet and holy shit, holy shit, is it good. And it's so satisfying. Uh, while I didn't make the, the tomato sauce, it's so satisfying making your own dough and just choosing what you want to put on it. And that feeling when you take it out and it's just perfectly browned and oh, I never knew that that I would at my age that I would get into cooking again. I did in my twenties. I made pizzas from from scratch, at least the the dough and stuff. And I just thought I was done with it. And I'm sure a lot of people are finding some silver linings to the quarantine with finding new hobbies and stuff like that. But I've um, just been really surprised at, at how enjoyable it's 
been in terms of discovering new things. And honestly, I'm super happy for people who've been out of work that the quarantine is slowly being lifted and they'll be able to start earning money again. But there's a part of me that does not want to leave this little cocoon I've created for myself. Uh, There's a part of me that dreads going back to um, the uncertainty of human connection, even though it's, it's the basis for so much stuff that's good in my life. There's still that part of my brain that, that wants to pull away and keep my life predictable. Anyway, I want to read a couple of uh, quick surveys, actually just two quick surveys before we get to the interview with Dr. Jane. Uh, and when I was editing this this interview, it was my brain was moving so slow. The pauses I had to edit out when I was talking were, uh, it was a little depressing. I, I think at that time I had either not, I was either not taking um, omega-3 or I hadn't started it at all, but it, it, uh, oh, it really bummed me out. It bummed me out. I feel like my brain's working a little faster these days, but still. Um, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves, I think this is a woman, calls herself West, Western Fence Lizard. And uh, they write, I've been watching the lizards since the local stay-at-home order. I love being outside and watering my plants and watching the lizards crawl out from behind my pots and give me annoyed looks when I spray water into their hiding spot. I love it when lizards come out on a warm, sunny day and start doing push-ups on a log. A lot of people don't know this, but the reason lizards do push-ups is a lot of them spent years in jail. Uh, they become institutionalized, and the re- the recidivism rate among reptiles, lizards especially, is uh, it's astonishing. Unrepentant. That's really the only word that I would use for, for lizards. Uh, continuing with their loves. Uh, when they wait by my porch light and eat the bugs attracted to the light. And I love the scent of musty, damp basements because they remind me of when I grew up in a wetter climate. Isn't it funny how certain smells, while they're not necessarily pleasant, can bring up such strong, I don't know if you'd say positive feelings, but certainly intense and often complex feelings. And then this is from the uh, love survey as well, filled out by Sabrina. She writes, Being bad at social distancing and bumping into a dog owner a few nights ago and yesterday, exchanging a nod and a light smile like, yeah, we're all terrified. But the clear night sky with no light pollution is stunning tonight too. Also, industrial qualities of coffee and dark chocolate brownies is now a responsible adult lunch. So, to those couples trying to make the rest of us feel bad, fuck you and fuck your matching yoga pants. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. 
The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Shelley Jane, uh, who is a psychiatrist. Uh, your practice is based in Palo Alto, and you uh, work at, what is your capacity at Stanford? Um, so I'm a clinical associate professor affiliated with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Okay. Boy, that's a mouthful. It is. Yes. Is there a business <laughs> card large enough to hold that? <laughs> yeah, um, not quite. What a dream guest you are because your specialty is PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, you share with us the different fields of work that you have gathered your insights on PTSD? I I would imagine uh, clinical research. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I wear many hats, primarily that of a clinician. mm -hmm. You know, I work in a veterans hospital, so uh, PTSD is definitely on the forefront of everybody's minds in that system. So day to day, that's kind of my work on the front lines, taking care of people who have extensive trauma histories. Um, so clinically, there's the experiences, and I've been doing this for 20 years. So um, I've worked with people who've survived all sorts of trauma, you know, combat, sexual violence, family violence, surviving natural disasters. Witnessing, uh, just witnessing an event as a bystander. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, witnessing a loved one, uh, you know, be brutally assaulted or attacked or this. I mean, there's so many events yeah. that qualify as traumas. Um, so clinically, definitely is, is the major hat that I wear. But I'm also um, a, a researcher. You know, I do health services research. Um, to figure out ways to kind of re-engineer PTSD care to make it more accessible, acceptable, available for people. Because a big problem that we have is that the vast majority of people who have PTSD get help too late. A big chunk of them don't get help at all. And are resistant to it. Yeah, that's the thing. You're, you're dealing with people who are hard to reach because of the very nature of the disorder. Because the last thing you want to talk about mm-hmm. is your trauma. Um, so I think re-engineering the way we deliver care, meeting people where they're at, there's so much work that can be done to help people, um, who are suffering to try and reach them earlier so that they can get early intervention because it is a very treatable condition. It is. It it, it really is. Um, it, it seems as if there has to be a degree of willingness Mm -hmm. on the part of the person, even if they... I would imagine if they don't believe it's going to help, mm-hmm. um, still just surrendering to the process of, of processing the trauma. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to human-made traumas, you know, like like violence, um, uh, it's understandable at the core of the PTSD is a mistrust. 
you know, of other human beings. Uh, A mistrust definitely of strangers, a mistrust of people in authority who have power over you, because a lot of times that was the dynamic of someone who's been abused or assaulted um, in that way. So really overcoming that is a big part of treatment, engaging people, earning their trust. Um, making sure they feel safe and respected. That's a huge part. Um, But yeah, getting people to that point. Oftentimes when I meet people, they've kind of hit rock bottom. And usually it's an ultimatum from a loved one. Get help or I'm out. Yeah. Which is, it's sad that we meet people there, but it goes to show Trauma begets trauma. I mean, PTSD is not just about the sufferer. It infiltrates the way they live, the way they work, the way they create, the way they love. It has it infiltrates so many people. Yeah. The type of parent they are, the type of spouse they are. So sometimes that is that is why they come in. You know that they're not functioning at work the way they want to function. Their personal relationships aren't where they want them to be. A lot of times, as we were chatting about earlier. It's compounded by alcohol and drug addiction problems. Um, and so things can spiral out of control. But the person themselves who's living through it, it's bewildering to them. It's yes. unfathomable. They don't quite understand what is going on. You know, they're really not in the driver's seat. So I think a big part of it is orientating them to what's going on. It's, it's hard because how do you convince somebody that they're looking through a distorted pair of glasses when they can't mm-hmm. feel the glasses? Yeah, invisible wounds, right? It's yeah. really hard because they can't see them. Um, yeah, it's a process. Um, and like I said, it's important you meet the person where they are at rather than imposing everything you know onto them, you know, meeting them where they're at. And a lot of times it's something simple like, I can't sleep. I cannot sleep. My sleep is awful. It, and sometimes it just starts with that and that is the opening in which you dig deeper, okay, why is your sleep awful? And then you hear about these nightmares that we've been having three times a week for the last 10 years, mm. right? Or, or it starts with, okay, my marriage is ending and I'm distraught and I feel terrible about it. And, and so meeting them where they're at. So not even necessarily saying, hey, I think you're suffering from PTSD right, right up front, just kind of working on the issue and then maybe gently when or where appropriate uh, bringing labels into things. It it, it varies. Some people, it's very reassuring for them to, you know, you'll meet somebody and it's really clear what's going on and they're hitting all diagnostic criteria and you'll Mm. check, check, check. And it's really obvious what's going on. And some people are ready to hear that. And it's reassuring for them to have a name to put to this experience and there's a source of validation for them. And then also that sense of community that they're not alone. You know, at any one given moment in time, there's 6 million Americans who suffer from PTSD. Severe enough that it needs treatment. That's a huge number of people. So that they're not alone. That can be really reassuring. But it doesn't always work for people. And I think that's where you've got to um, tailor it. You know, to who it is you're you're talking with, and sometimes it's not clear what the diagnosis is either. Mm-hmm. You know, can the, you give an example? So, for example, um, uh, uh, within the case of people who are suffering with alcohol and drug addiction, sometimes all you're seeing up front is the alcohol and drug addiction. That's what's mm-hmm. so obvious in your in your face in that story, and it's only when that gets stripped away. And someone is maybe abstinent for a while, or they've cut back drastically, that you start to notice that they're talking more openly about, say, nightmares or avoidance symptoms or mood symptoms. They're beginning to feel their feelings as they exactly. unknown from the right. compulsive behavior. Right. 
exactly. And let's not forget, sometimes it takes people a long time to disclose to you the trauma that they experience. And I find that to be especially true when it comes to childhood trauma. Because, you know, PTSD has been described as a disorder of memory, you know, and especially when people are, you know, assaulted or abused or something really awful happens to them during their childhood when their brain is still developing and their body is still developing, it can be the, the trauma memories can kind of come in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, sometimes it can take a while for people mm-hmm. to even disclose it. But you kind of need that disclosure to be able to make the diagnosis. You can't really make yeah. it in the absence of knowing that there was some traumatic events. So it takes time. So it's a journey. And I feel like I feel like from a doctor perspective that I'm a companion on this journey. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure I can fix or cure them, but we can certainly manage the symptoms really well and get them to a much better point. And it's just being a companion on this journey where we're going to have setbacks, you know, where we're going to take two steps forward sometimes, but just being there for them. So them having the sense that they're a part of a team, that this isn't being imposed on them, you know, like you have the flu and we're just going to give you shots. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't work. (laughs) 20 years of doing this, it does not work to impose something on someone. does not work. It's, it's not the right approach on so many levels. They have to be ready. They have to be at that point. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, I'm quite comfortable with ambiguity. I don't need to see a result right away. I just don't think human beings are wired that way. They're too complicated. And it could be that I might have a conversation with someone today. They might not be ready to listen to me. But maybe something will filter through and maybe a year from now, two years from now, the penny will drop and that's okay with me. But you can't, I don't think you can, you know, the very nature of trauma in itself takes, makes someone feel out of control. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to reenact that, you know, they have to be ready. They got to be able to wanting to do that work. And I'm not saying the work's not challenging. It is, but they have to want to do it. It's got to be a decision that they're leading and I'm supporting. And I imagine in that moment, they're probably at the worst point in their lives, uh, bottoming out in one way or another, either mm-hmm. through insomnia or a marriage dissolving mm-hmm. or being arrested or mm-hmm. can't stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so all of that, um, from my experiences as a, as a person in recovery in several areas of my mm-hmm. life, when people come in for help in the beginning – all they seem to be able to focus on is getting their life together. Mm-hmm. And they think it's about the external circumstances of mm-hmm. their life. Mm-hmm. And the challenge seems to be to get them to talk about their feelings and mm-hmm. to be present. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. How, how, how do you go about that? I suppose each person's different. Totally. And it's a triage, right? I mean, if someone's on the verge of homelessness, that is not a time to be digging into their traumas you know Uh, so there's definitely this triage element the other thing is is if someone's suicidal and let's not forget i mean ptsd is a serious condition that everybody carries a higher rate of of death by suicide it's like about 20 percent. it's really high so if someone's feeling suicidal that is not the time to go deeply into trauma work there has to be a certain stability in their life before you do that deep trauma work that we know helps people heal. Um, 
so like you said, it could be a process. I might meet somebody who's who's very stable in many ways. If you look at, you know, say, so maybe they have a job, maybe their marriage is going okay and things are going all right, but they're noticing deficits in their life that they want to improve on. Or mm-hmm. maybe they've been treated for depression, but they're not getting better. And then this issue of trauma has come up. Maybe they've been triggered, right? So recently, everything with the Me Too movement and all those big cases that were covered, um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of coverage of Me Too related cases. Like when you look at the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, when you look at this um, HBO uh, documentary that recently came out, um, The Finding Neverland, mm-hmm. um, that's it triggers a lot of people. I was, de- I was depressed for four or five days. And there's something visceral that. about it, yeah. right? There's something visceral about it. And then a lot of times that's when people will show up, you know what? There was something about that that hit too close to home, and now I want to deal with it. So in those circumstances, you might be able to go right into the trauma focus work, but everybody's unique. You're meeting people at different stages of their journey, and I think as a clinician, it's your job to um, pivot. What are the um, checkpoints for PTSD, If you're the criteria for labeling it that? Okay, so... Um, so, you know, obviously PTSD, just by definition, it's linked to a traumatic event, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it's important to be clear what qualifies as a traumatic event because that gets a little diluted sometimes. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of stressful things happen to people all the time. You know, you might lose a job or have a really bad breakup. And those are really stressful. And I don't mean to diminish those. But when we're talking about trauma in the context of PTSD, we're talking about something Oftentimes it's life threatening, mm-hmm. right? Or a threat to somebody's kind of physical and bodily integrity, like in the case of rape or sexual violence. Uh, you know, so, uh, usually in these traumas, someone thinks their life is going to end. The, mm-hmm. Their sense of normalcy is totally shattered. So just to give you a sense of the type of traumas we're talking about. And, and, and even if they're not going to die, but that their, their, uh, safety is, is, is being compromised in, yep. in a way that overall feels like my life as I know it is being ripped away from yes, me. Yes, right. So, for example, it, you know, if they were going about their life thinking they were doing everything they should be doing, and then suddenly the whole basis and the foundation for what they believed to be true was just pulled out from underneath them. So that kind of level of trauma, you know, I mean, it's difficult. You don't want to tell somebody something wasn't traumatic to them when it was. I mean, there, right. there is that gray area. But generally speaking, if you want to look at how we diagnose PTSD, if you want to really go by the book, it, it's these massive type of traumas, you know. Um, and um, after experiencing something like that, um, there's a whole slew of symptoms that people will feel. Now, what gets confusing about PTSD is a lot of your brain's natural response to trauma <laughs> mimics a lot of PTSD, right? So if any of us went through a major trauma, it's going to be normal that you are not sleeping, that you feel on edge, that you replay the thing again and again and again in your head. And I think we can all think of situations where that has happened. But in a way, in those early days, that is your brain's way of healing, Mm-hmm. Okay, it's kind of got to go through that just to process what happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will say that with time, they'll heal naturally. The vast majority of people will heal naturally with time. Um, and those memories will be no more traumatic, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line. And a lot of people will say they've grown, right? Mm-hmm. They have a period of growth. They call it post-traumatic growth. But 
my world focuses on that substantial minority of people who do not naturally um, heal. There's a yeah. lack of resilience. Well, I don't know. Um, a lot of it is uh, determined, believe it or not, by hereditary. Mm-hmm. A lot of what determines who develops PTSD after trauma and who does not is actually determined by the way we are wired mm-hmm. and our genes and genetics. A third of that, a third of it is 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 um, determined by that. Wow. Um, so uh, yeah, and then the symptoms you'll see are the kind of textbook intrusive memories of the trauma and by intrusive i mean the person is not willfully recalling those memories they are coming to them out of the blue unwelcome intrusive memories so they can't go about their normal day in their job and parenting and being in a relationship without getting these intrusive memories um flashbacks is you know that kind of quintessential symptom of ptsd where the person is reliving the trauma in the moment and if you've ever seen anybody going through that is it's one of the most horrifying things to watch because they are not in this moment they are being taken back in time and a lot of times they'll relive that memory and all of the actions and the bodily sensations that went along with that trauma um nightmares is a classic Mm -hmm. the classic ptsd nightmare they replay the trauma again and again and again and it can happen many nights a week it can go on for years and years so those are the 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 ones that it's famous for that people probably Mm -hmm. know about you know the exaggerated startle response you know they hear a loud noise and they assume it's a bomb hypervigilance yes hypervigilance like the checking doors again and again you know three guns under the bed like those are the ones that i think are quite famous now in popular culture i think what does not get enough attention is the mood symptoms, the anger, the shame, the guilt that people just live in year after year after year. And then um, uh, the avoidance. Yes. Is black and white thinking a part of that? So black and white thinking, we um, tend to associate with depression. Right. It's a cognitive pattern of depression, but there's such an overlap between PTSD and depression. So many people with PTSD also have depression. The comorbidity is really high. So I think it's hard to tease it out. Um, but the avoidance symptoms, uh, it's usually when people have built this life where they totally constricted their life to avoid any reminders of the trauma on an emotional level and on a behavioral level. I think that gets missed with PTSD a lot. So small and predictable. Uh, where where um, minimizing the unknown is it is is that part fair, of fair to say yeah part yeah, of the avoidance right. uh, hyper control wanting to right. control every part of their life gotcha. and of course that works until it doesn't work right because none of us have got control right? right it's it's a it's a myth it's it's not true but avoidance is that where they constrict their everything to avoid having to think about the trauma. Um, but oftentimes it's hard to live a whole life that way. Yeah. And at some point they get into trouble. So I think the avoidance and then, um, also the, the mood symptoms, which cause this alienation from loved ones, uh, this emotionally barren life. I think that's what doesn't get enough, uh, attention. In which terms I would of imagine symptoms. feeds the depression and the shame. There you go. Feeling Everything. of being alone yep. and... I am other than. Right. Or I deserve this. This right. is what I deserve right. for, you know, X, Y, Z and living with those faulty cognitions. Oftentimes they're faulty right. in PTSD. Um, so, yeah, so those are the type of, of kind of textbook symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it's important to, we now know in the last 10 years, there's a whole syndrome called partial PTSD. People aren't meeting the textbook definition. You know, they're not checking off those boxes, but it is a real thing and people are still suffering and they probably need help. And there are millions of millions of people right now who have partial PTSD. Um, So these are the kind of things, the last 20 years of PTSD science, which has grown hugely in the last 20 years, we're uncovering these kind of subtypes. You know, to flesh it out a little bit to understand. Right. So, you know, the same way you can be pre-diabetic, right? Right. But not diabetic, but it's serious. You've got to pay attention. You don't want to be pre-diabetic. Right. The same with partial PTSD. And what do you find neurologically uh, in, in your research about <clears throat> PTSD and what's going on with the brain? So neuroscientists in the last 20 years have made great strides in understanding more about the PTSD brain. Um, you know, caveat before I before I discuss what changes there are is, you know, this is landscape is shifting all the time, right? That the tools that we're getting to measure are becoming more and more sophisticated. So, you know, nothing is set in stone. And genetics is changing Everything, every, every minute. Right, yeah. right. So I think anybody who tells you they know exactly what's going on in the PTSD brain is not being, you know, is being a little reductionistic. But what we do know is the hippocampus, which is part of the brain that is involved in the formation of memories, that is smaller in people who have PTSD. We don't know why. We don't know if it was smaller before they were exposed to trauma or if it was afterwards, but it is smaller. Um, And like I mentioned before, PTSD is a disorder of memory. So this kind of all really makes sense with what we're seeing with these people. Um, The amygdala, uh, which is a set of almond-shaped neurons located in the temporal lobe of the brain is, and is very much involved in the regulation of fear and anger, that is overactive in people who have PTSD. So basically they go from zero to 100 mm-hmm. like that. Or they sense All of a sudden, they're shaking with adrenaline. Yeah, totally. Adrenaline. And they may even know intellectually, this this person isn't trying to kill me, but I am reacting. Their their body's reacting before they have a chance to hold back. So they go from zero to 100. And also, they sense fear where there's no need for fear. Right. right? They, they misperceive the world's stimulus, right? Yeah. So the amygdala is overactive. And then on top of that, we know the frontal lobe, the parts of the brain that help us make judgments and plan and execute and, you know, kind of think logically, that is underactive. So you can see how a combination of those things make for this picture where people are kind of reacting before they're thinking, you know. Um, And then like you mentioned, the adrenaline, the noradrenaline, we know that is high in people with PTSD. The stress hormone cortisol Mm -hmm. is all wonky and serotonin also is implicated in PTSD. So that's some of the stuff we know about the neurobiology of PTSD that has shown again and again and again in different studies to be, to hold true. You know, one of the things I've uh, always been fascinated by is the uh, sometimes uh, with compulsive behavior, mm-hmm. you know, whether somebody's shoplifting or acting out sexually or driving to go score drugs, there's a release mm-hmm. of adrenaline mm-hmm. and like shaky hands mm-hmm. and 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 uh, sometimes it's combined with euphoria, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes it isn't. But I, I wonder sometimes if um, the obsession and the compulsive behavior is is somehow linked to Mm -hmm. that you know Mm -hmm. like a a brain's way of we don't want to think about this other thing Mm -hmm. um yet something unconsciously is is tapping into that right um while they're trying to soothe their self with a with compulsive yep 
right. be- behavior. I know I've always been fascinated by well, that. Well, when as you're talking, where my mind goes is to this kind of controversial phenomenon of reenactment, mm-hmm. which is as as a trauma clinician, I feel like I see it all the time. So you mentioned, like for example, let's say with sexual promiscuity. Okay, so, you know, a lot of times I'll meet people who are survivors of severe child sexual abuse, whether it be like incest or, you know, and they grew up in these chronically traumatizing situations. And in their grown adult life, they will continue to engage in promiscuous behavior and expose themselves to risk all the time, even though they're acknowledging the trauma they experienced as a child. But it's almost like they're on autopilot Mm -hmm. and something else takes over. And there is this phenomenon of reenactment where it's like your body is wired to go through the same thing again and again and again because it feels familiar. Mm -hmm. And and I have experienced experience that and it's a it can be a high unlike no other especially if you're in a place where you're numbing yourself with drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. to feel any kind of good stimulation Mm -hmm. you need a jolt Mm -hmm. with you know like a cattle prod right Right. and so sometimes high risk behavior will achieve that right and and it's familiar right it's Um, familiar right right yeah and like you said you feel alive Yes. Right. But then it's instantly followed by shame and, and then, regret yeah, right. and, you know. And a vicious cycle. A vicious yeah. cycle. So reenact, yeah, I, I feel like that's maybe how it ties in with PTSD, this, this phenomenon of reenactment. And part of the effective treatment for PTSD is to help people bring what is kind of implicit up to the surface so that they can get back in the driver's seat of their life. What do you mean when you say implicit? So, you know, a lot of the memories uh, of PTSD, they're implicit in the sense that you're not, uh, you know, so you have explicit memories. Like if I asked you, you know, what's your address? What's your social security number? Where you kind of go into your brain and you retrieve the data and you mm. regurgitate it out, right? Explicit, you you have, I have to actually think about it and go in, get the information, come out. Implicit memories are like, say, if you're driving a car and you're absorbed with what's going on on your radio or the podcast that you're listening to and somehow you end up home but you can't quite remember how you got home your implicit memories kick in to make sure you paid attention to that red light or that Ah. stop sign or the pedestrian on the street so you don't have you kind of go on an autopilot yes but the implicit memories kick in but they respond um to environmental cues Okay, so uh, so it's it's kind of um, your brain functioning on a way on a way on a wavelength that you're not totally aware of, and that is the problem with a lot of people with PTSD. A lot of those memories are implicit memories, so they're kind of taking control of someone in a way without without the person really deliberately retrieving them. And so um, a lot of the work of trauma therapy is making people aware of the cues that trigger those memories. So let's say, for example, a woman who was raped by a man who wore a certain aftershave. Just the smell of that aftershave might make her feel totally nauseous, totally anxious, totally drained. But she might not be able to consciously put those steps together. Mm. It's only in the work of trauma, deep trauma-focused therapy, will the dots start to become revealed so they can connect it. And I think becoming aware of your trauma cues is the first step in recovery from PTSD because you can get a handle on it then. If you know why you're getting triggered, 
you have one more step closer to having control over the process. It's interesting you mentioned that too, because there's an incest survivors group that asks people not to wear perfumes or colognes. Right, because they're so sensitive to the yeah. environmental. Yep, right, exactly. And just goes to show, you know, smells, tastes, um, what you saw. So they're, they're connected. A song. A exactly. time of year. What you heard, a time of year. There you go. Like the fall, the seasons changing. It basically trauma memories are wired with all of these environmental cues into these big structures they call fear networks. And the problem with fear networks is you trigger one, you can trigger the whole network. Wow. And in fact, in a flashback, that's what happens. The whole yeah. network is totally, you know, on, and that's why you feel like you're reliving your trauma in the present. Yeah. So, so being aware of your cues is really important. Okay. Uh, I kind of got you derailed talking yeah. about the, uh, the smaller ones. Uh -huh. um, did you finish your thought? On, on the that? partial PTSD? Yeah, just to make, I think people should be aware, you know, yes. that just because you don't have the textbook, flashbacks and nightmares, that doesn't mean you're not suffering. Right. You know, it comes in, in different shades and we're getting a better sense. You know, we have to come up with diagnoses and labels and we have to have certain criteria just because the way the medical world operates and the way we fund research and the way we study things, you know, we've got to know we're talking about the same thing. Otherwise, yeah. it's not a science, right? But at the end of the day, you have to meet people where they're at and help those symptoms improve that are, are wrecking their life. Mm -hmm. And it could be a little bit of everything. A lot of times it's not clearly defined, but you can be pretty sure, oh, that thing that happened to you there at that time, yep, you're still yeah. suffering as a result of and that. And it certainly doesn't hurt to process it. Yep. <laughs> you know, there's right. the, it's certainly not a waste of time right. to investigate yes that and talk about it right uh one of the surveys uh we have for the podcast is a, a survey called shame and secrets survey and one of the questions is have you ever experienced sexual abuse and one of the answers people can choose is some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts mm -hmm. and the degree that people will go to minimize the most horrifying things yeah. to not classify it continually blows my mind right um which makes me think is is what are the reasons for that both uh let, let's say universally what are what are some of the reasons for it is it the brain's way of of protecting that person so that they can function is is it related to the fact that when a lot of us experience an event that is traumatizing we go numb mm -hmm. and that gets kind of placed in a numb right folder right right <laughs> where we view it almost dispassionately right to protect ourselves yeah but if it were to happen to somebody else yeah we would we would feel differently yeah about it i i mean i think you bring up really good reasons and they, they could be great explanations for all i think when um when people survive trauma oftentimes traumas especially the human traumas of human design like abuse or mm. um assault um they really uh shatter all we hold to be sacred and true. So these events become unspeakable, you know, too terrible to utter aloud. So we don't speak of them. And, um, and speaking of that, that's the name of your book, correct? That, 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 and I think that the reason I bring that up is, is because it's when they become unspeakable that PTSD thrives. Right. And sometimes survivors want to speak, but society isn't ready to hear them. So if you're raised in a family that doesn't want to hear that, you know, your uncle 
or your grandfather is sexually abusing you, then, then the survivor is forced into silence and then it becomes unspeakable. So a lot is determined by that. But, but yeah, I mean, going back to the title of the book, that's exactly it. PTSD thrives in those conditions and making the unspeakable speakable is actually part of what works to help people heal. And I've heard many people when, when sharing about going to an authority figure to say, Hey, this is happening to me. Um, they will often say that when, like if they go to a parent and that parent calls them a liar, that that's more traumatizing well, than sec- the event itself. Secondary injuries. So true. So true. I mean, every single patient I meet, and I've treated thousands of patients over 20 years, I have to ask this question. Have you, were you abused as a child, sexually, emotionally, physically? Okay. And I would say the 20% of the time, these grown adults, because I see adults, I don't see kids, will say to me, yes. But that's not, the story doesn't end there. The next question I ask is, did you ever tell anyone? And there's usually three categories. There's those who told someone, they told an adult right away and something was done. The perpetrator was stopped. Sometimes the perpetrator went to jail or they were banned from the house. Like swift action was taken. It was done. The second group will say they spoke up, but but they were told they were a liar. Right. And then the third group will say, I didn't feel I could speak up. I didn't think anybody would hear me. And it's those latter two groups who suffer the most, in my experience. And at least in terms of the surveys that I read. Yeah. And 10,000 people have taken this survey. Wow. That forms about 90% of the responses of people who did experience um, sexual abuse. That um, they weren't heard. That they weren't, they either felt it wasn't safe to speak up or they spoke up and were either told to be quiet or you're a liar or nothing was really done. But the damage, the most damage psychologically comes with that response. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's the crime itself, the sexual violence, that's a crime in of itself. And then there's these secondary injuries that come when people disbelieve or they blame or they shame. And that's a whole problem within itself. And to me, a lot of folks who had that experience as a kid and end up in this kind of web of psychological ambiguity that follows them into their adulthood, follows them into their other relationships because it's kind of unresolved stuff. But that brings me to this thing you were talking about, universal thing. I, I feel encouraged when we live in times we are where we are more and more open. You know, when I think of what um, the kind of education young kids get today about how it's important that you know you know it's not okay for people to touch you if you don't want to be touched and mm-hmm. they're getting more ed- education about having agency and and um having a right to say no you know we're, mm-hmm. we're having these discussions that i think in pre- previous generations we didn't really talk about it was really taboo it really so I, was. yeah and i think you know and then when this digital era where where stuff gets communicated in so many different ways and it's so much more accessible so i do think a level of literacy about these things help you know, I, I sometimes think some of these parents who may not have had an optimal response when their child said that, mm-hmm. a part of it was like the ignorance of the time and just not having access to better information. I do like to feel like in the last 20 years, I've seen people be more evolved. Yeah. I feel like the average person knows better now. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to put blame on... Certainly yeah. in the last year and a half. Oh, well, yeah. That, if they're, this paying, has if been they're huge. paying attention. attention. This has been huge. I yeah. think this has been like a revolution with yeah. the Me Too movement. But, but, but just generally, mm-hmm. I feel like people are a lot more aware of these issues. Watching 
the, the Me Too movement happen and the way that survivors are treated and perpetrators are viewed. How do you view it as a clinician? Because I would mm-hmm. imagine you view it through a much more complex and nuanced lens than mm-hmm. people do. Like that motherfucker should be taken to a, you know, a right. desert island. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, why is she making such a big deal? Right. Uh, about this. Right. Um, right. You know, the latter, yeah. I think we've, we've talked about it a right. little bit, but right. what, what can we do instead of just pushing perpetrators to a desert island, l- l- labeling them as evil? Yeah. Um, and then right. mo- moving on. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have consequences or some of them sure. shouldn't go to jail for the rest of their lives, right. but, the analogy I always use is if there was a rash of forest fires, we mm-hmm. wouldn't just say, well, fire is evil. Yeah. We would look at the forests and we would say, what is making this so right. abundant? Right. What are the causes and right. conditions and what can we do moving forward as, as a society right. if we have any kind of influence or control over right. this? And what are your thoughts as a clinician? Right. I mean, it's it's super, super complicated, right? I mean, you're not only talking about you know, sexuality and consent and then crimes such as, you know, rape. But I think power differentials is what's really fascinating to me. Um, I feel like that's something we're, we're tapping into, the, 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 how a dynamic of a relationship changes when there's a power differential. And for me, what oftentimes I see is between a parent and a child, right? And how, how complicated that is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the cases of, let's say, kids who are abused by a caregiver or a trusted adult, um, there is this theory called betrayal trauma theory where a child um, doesn't uh, has to almost block out what happened in order to survive physically. Because the, the child has to live, right? And they're dependent on these adults for, you know, food, housing, mm-hmm. shelter. And so they can almost dissociate from what happened because of um, this betrayal trauma theory that they have to kind of survive to get through this period. And then it might only be years later when they look back on the situation that they realize, right? You're yeah. smiling. <laughs> yeah, uh, you describe yeah. my my life exactly. There for you go. For 20 years right my ex would tell me you have not dealt with the way your mom touches you, talks to you, the things she did to you. And right. I would just, I, I did not want to right. hear it until I was ready to hear it at 48 years old. So 40 right. years of, of minimizing something, putting it away yeah. in a, in a folder and yeah. having all the signs that you talked about. Right. And I feel, uh, you know, I apologize to the regular listeners because I've mentioned this every time, but I feel I need to present a full view of this is that I went on as an adult to become a womanizer and objectifier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed of the way mm-hmm. that I acted. I'm, mm-hmm. I'd like to believe I'm not that person mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. but th- that I think always needs to be mentioned with mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. it's so complicated and the ripples of these things, if we don't get help, mm-hmm. we don't process it. Right. It gets, yep. It's unwieldy. It gets spread, right? And and trauma begets trauma. Hurt people hurt right. people, you know. And like you said, we're not excusing behavior that's criminal. We're not excusing that, but that is we have to be curious about that, right. you know. And so I wonder when I see somebody who is as sick 
as a Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. the podcaster in me, you know, after I think, well, thank God this guy's been brought to justice, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hope he goes to jail. Mm-hmm. I hope these, uh, these people who were victimized by him get the help Mm -hmm. and feel their pain validated Mm -hmm. then i wonder what how did he become that right what happens to somebody who behaves that way what happened to them that they behave that way yeah and those are obviously i think those are really really important questions it's impossible to know with every one individual but you know i think a lot of times what i see in in people who have trauma histories is, you know, they have two two sides of them. Do you know what I mean? The victim and the perpetrator can come to lie in the same person. Mm-hmm. And you have to be okay. You have to be able to put those two opposing thoughts in your mind and have them live together right. to be able to really see the person as an integrated whole, right? right? A patient who I know was really, who, who I know was badly treated, who I knew had a horrible childhood, who I knew was exposed to way too much violence, can at the same time be a victim of that, but also be a perpetrator of violence yeah. in his everyday life, right? So there's no point in disintegrating them or, right. or that, that, that doesn't work. You have to integrate them so they can understand themselves as a whole. Um, so, um, yeah, I think we've got to be curious. I think the worst thing you can happen is, is, is shut down the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is one of the most important things to understand sexual violence in our society, in our culture. And to keep the dialogue going is really, really important. Because as you know, in other parts of the world, I mean, they're not even anywhere close to talking in this kind of detail. It's still so taboo. Yeah, when people throw around words like, you know, that person's evil, I don't don't like language like that Mm -hmm. because i feel like that ends a conversation Mm -hmm. you know i like to use words like that person is very sick Mm -hmm. they're you know possibly they've got some traumatic wound that Mm -hmm. they're acting out Mm -hmm. through this and Mm -hmm. i think people sometimes misconstrue that misconstrues that that means i don't think Mm -hmm. that that person should have consequences right i I do they're not mutually exclusive Right. right right Yeah, I hear you. And I I agree. I I think when you call someone evil, it's a really good way of putting yourself, giving yourself distance from the situation. That evil is somehow something really rare and unusual, and you're not going to encounter that in your life. Whereas if you look at the the statistics for trauma, just sexual violence alone, like one in five American women have been raped. What does that mean? I mean, this isn't, this isn't the, the man in the back alley, the stranger in the back alley. One in five means it's people we know. Right. Right. So, but I think by calling them evil or something unusual, we can put ourselves distance and reassure ourselves that we're okay and we're safe. But of course, that is total fallacy. Yeah, that's interesting. Almost like how the the uh, victim will sometimes minimize or blame themselves for it. It's it's right. like the things we will tell ourselves to dissuade ourselves from the idea that the world can be a bit chaotic and random. Yes, absolutely, and that. You know, I think one of the prevailing cognitions that they noticed when when trauma scientists were trying to understand why people develop PTSD, they realized that a lot of people go through life with this cognition that bad things don't happen to good people. That was their fundamental belief. Like if you really dug deep, Mm -hmm. that was their thinking. So then post-trauma, their whole worldview was shattered. Yeah. Because what does that mean? If that happened to them, well, then what did, what did that mean? So it was almost part of the treatment for PTSD is really dismantling your cognitions 
starting from scratch mm -hmm. and then building up a new way of how you view the world. And, and what are some ways that people might view the world? Does spirituality ever factor into it? Um, yeah. I, I know that's mm -hmm. such a vague term, mm -hmm. but uh, for me, finding purposes greater than mm -hmm. myself mm -hmm. um, helped me get out of the selfish mind mm -hmm. frame mm -hmm. that I'm doomed, I'm yep. fucked, you know, right. etc., etc. Et Other people don't understand me. Um, different, yep. uh, you know, support groups helped me feel connected and a yep. part of a, a, a larger whole right. that to me is it lifts my spirit. And so I call that spiritual. Yep. Right. Um, right. I know that that's not going to cure clinical depression. Sure. Um, but it, it has helped me process a lot yep. of things. And, and so I wonder mm -hmm. from a clinician's point yep. of view, mm -hmm. how do you, yeah, touch on these subjects that are so kind of ephemeral and difficult to put into a diagnostic right. manual. Right, right. But but people are doing it all the time. So one thing that always I find I'm so humbled by when I talk to um, people who have PTSD is a lot of times because they've hit rock bottom in their life, because they've seen the worst that life has to offer, I'm always blown over with how brave these people can be too, because they're, they're in a way they're paradoxically fearless because they've seen the worst, you know? So what more do they have to fear? And a lot of them, um, one of the ways they will cultivate this resilience is, is they'll take on something that's bigger than them, you know, or they'll get so much joy from helping people who have lived through things similar to what they have lived through. And I think it serves as a way to connect to other people, which is really important in PTSD because obviously the tendency oh, yeah. to is isolate and have shame and avoidance. So I think connecting to people that way, living for something higher than yourself can be a really guiding light. So I almost feel like they, are, they operate from a more enlightened plane because they've really kind of seen life for what it is. And now they're reevaluating yes. and building a new life. And, and this search for meaning. Yeah. You know, I mean, like Victor Frankl's book is there so amazing. Go. Right. The search for meaning. I mean, he, you get to the essence of what matters in life, nice. too. In a way, they're living a more real life because of their traumas. And, and they're not saying that the chaos and the horror doesn't exist. Yes. What they're saying is within that, right. we can find moments of beauty and yes. connection. Right. Despite that. Yes. And I don't know. What the hell's going on with, is there a God? Is there a not a God? Mm -hmm. If there is a God, why are children starving? Why do terrible things happen? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But what I do know is when I get in a frame of mind where it's not all about me and mm -hmm. what am I getting, mm -hmm. that I'm able to not let little beautiful moments pass mm -hmm. me by. Mm -hmm. One that I've shared on the podcast mm -hmm. before, but... I had been sober for a couple of years, and I had one night where I just had ankle surgery. It was throbbing. It was killing me. The stomach flu hit me. Oh. I had 104 oh, fever. No. I was laying on the bathroom right. floor, and the phone rang, and my dad had died. Oh, and in that moment, I went, okay, where where is the goodness that energy that love comes from? Where, where? connect to that. Right. Connect to that. Right. And it's like this this 
this energy came down and comforted me in that moment. And I smiled because I knew I will get through this. Yes, it's yeah. going to be painful. Yeah. This all sucks. Yeah. I'm not denying that it sucks. Yeah. But it's a part of life. Right. And I will get through this. And I, and I said to myself, the next couple of weeks, I'm going to, as I go back for my dad's funeral, I'm going to look for the moments yeah. of beauty. I'm going yep. to try to see where, you know, for lack of a better word, God right. is. Right. And as I was packing to go back for the trip, my one leg was in a cast. Oh, boy. I thought, I only have to pack one shoe. <laughs> and I just started laughing because okay. it's like that... If yeah. They're everywhere. I get yeah. to get wheeled through security yeah. at the airport. Yeah. And yeah. some people would say, well, you're just being dim-witted and you're pushing the silver lining thing a little bit too far. Right. It works for me. Right. It brings me peace. It brings me more smiles. Right. And then my mind is a little bit more open yeah. to listen to somebody, to right. maybe be of help to somebody occasionally. Right. Right. And I think you hit on so many amazing points that if you can operate from a place of abundance, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, that's such a healthy state. You know, you're operating from a place of abundance and being present. Then, of course, you're going to see beauty and everything. I mean, and that's a place where we all want to be. The problem with people who are in the thick of PTSD is they're just survival mode, which is a, a place of poverty. Yeah. So all they see is what's right in front of them. That, and they have that scarcity mindset. So I think switching from being in a survival mode all the time to being in a, in a mode where you can thrive, such as what you described under that condition, that even though when you were getting hit from all angles, you could, you could thrive yeah. and smile through it. That's what I think the goal is. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, people can't operate in that mode every day of every week for the rest of their life, right? No. It comes and goes. It's, it it's comes what we, and goes. Yeah. It's a daily, it's a daily uh, <laughs> right. battle, but right. worth the effort. And yes. it took years to yep. get to that place, right. and I can slip away from it right. in, in, in an instant and right. be, you know, uh, wanting to fight somebody. Right. right. Um, when you get somebody who's in that survival mode, how do you deal with them as a clinician? Now, you know, you talked about triage. Uh, mm -hmm. They're having trouble sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, you try to get them to sleep first and then you'll look at the next layer that comes up or what? Yeah, I mean, I think restoration of like basic biological rhythms is just really important. I mean, if people are not sleeping, there's just a limit to what you're going to do. I mean, your human brain needs sleep, you know. Mm. So I think restoring um, sleep, you know, nourishment um, and maybe using some kind of low hanging fruit strategies like, um, you know, relaxation, deep breathing exercises. They're already when they're in that state of mind they are already overstimulated. They're already kind of on edge. So throwing too much information at them is just going to overwhelm them even more. So just the most simple of things we can do to help people kind of get down to baseline. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I'm a psychiatrist, so obviously a big part of what I do is um, – I, I have to give people medication sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, um, and sometimes if people have really um, uh, got severe PTSD, that that's the only way to go. They need medication, uh, maybe for a short period of time in, the, mm -hmm. in the, the, the scheme of things. But it's almost like they need that medication to bring them down physiologically before they can even do any right. effective therapy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, would that be called like acute? In a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd say cute. I mean, you know, it varies. People come in so many, people's lives are so complicated. You know, if you've got a single mom who's working two jobs, who's got three kids, she, you know, therapy might not be 
the most practical option for her. Right. For some people, therapy can feel like a luxury. You know, if you've got people who are underinsured or from low-income backgrounds, so then I feel like we just got to use whatever tools we have. Um, and, and there are medications that we know are very effective for people with PTSD. I mean, I don't think a month goes by when I don't see someone have a life-altering transformational medication. So it's definitely one of the tools we use. It might, it's not the first-line treatment for PTSD, talk therapy, trauma-focused psychotherapy is still always going to be the first line. I would still recommend it to everybody. Yeah. EMDR is a good one, right? EMDR has got excellent evidence. CPT, which is cognitive processing therapy, mm -hmm. PE, which is uh, prolonged exposure. All of them have got excellent evidence to support their effectiveness in helping mm -hmm. people with PTSD. So, you know, that would definitely be your first line. But yes. the reality is, is yeah. it's not an option for Somatic everyone. experiencing was a profound thing for for me. Tell me that a little bit. It's uh, it was founded by Peter Levine, and uh, it's it's a little too long, probably for for me to be able to to do it justice. Yeah. But it's a way of releasing trauma from the body that isn't as uh, talk based as talk therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a way of kind of reliving in a safe environment. Yes, the thing that was traumatic, but because the, the clinician that is that is with you. Um, has created a trusting environment yeah. it's safe to go back yeah. and and i was kind of rolling my eyes like i'm right. gonna give this thing one more session right. and then i had a session that absolutely so much came up and out and wow. was so cathartic i felt like the tin man had who had just been oiled wow and um I could feel things leave my body. I could find the words that i couldn't say when i was 11 years old wow. and i felt like um, I, I don't want to be on this planet. I'm so scared, and there's nobody wow. to, to, protect me. And those the that experience that you had, the benefits of that were sustained over time. You yeah. felt that's, I feel like that's it, yeah. very impressive. That's yeah. really good. I think is it Waking the Tiger, Peter Levine's book. Um, is it Waking the Tiger? Body Keeps the Score is Bessel van der Kolk. It is. Yeah, Body Keeps the Score is by Vessel van der Kolk. Oh, then maybe it's Waking the Time. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think. I don't want to, I'm not 100% okay. sure, but I know for sure I know the Body Keeps the Score is Bessel van der Kolk. Oh my that God, I've been telling sure. everybody it's Peter Levine. Yeah, yeah, but I think Peter Levine's is Waking the Tiger. But you bring up a really good point that, and this is something I'm becoming more and more open to as I hear people's experiences. So a lot of the traditional trauma-focused psychotherapies, they're very cognitive, they're very in your head, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of the homework exercises and the writing exercises, they work for people who are comfortable with those mediums, right? right? And of course, not everybody is comfortable in those mediums. And people are wired very differently. So it, it definitely feel it explains the popularity of a lot of these mind-body approaches yeah. where the physicality of the, the PTSD is looked at, you know? So I'm definitely open-minded to everything. Thing, but at the same time, I want to make sure people try what we know is tried and tested and that we have really solid evidence for. Yeah. You know, I really want to make sure people have access to those treatments. Uh, and I did have good results with EMDR you did as well. And good that was uh, another event yes. was, was processed with, with that. And okay. I, again, felt like muscles were relaxed that I hadn't felt that relaxation wow. with and since... I, I could remember. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. And, and slept for almost two full days wow. after one EMDR session. That's so encouraging. Yeah. So um, I think hitting it on as many fronts as you can. Yep. Trying everything and yep. just keep going, even if it feels like, um, you know, I'm a hopeless case. Right. But, I, but also know how brave you are for naming it, giving it a name, identifying it's a problem and doing something about it. Like I have the utmost respect 
for people who are willing to do that? Because do you know the millions of people who have not accepted they have a problem and they've just gone on ruining people's lives for centuries? I, I have so much respect for people who show up in my clinic and they're willing to say, you know what, there's something not right and I need some help. Brave, brave people because there's thousands of people who will never do that. You know, so I, f- I feel like that um, bravery should be given kudos. It's not easy. It's not easy to be that vulnerable, to come find a complete stranger and open yourself up that way. It, it's scary. Yeah. I, I see it as the gift of desperation. But thank you for your compliment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your compliment. Um, give me the name of your book. Oh, it's called The Unspeakable Mind. The Unspeakable Mind. Yeah. And uh, I don't know whether or not it will be out when this airs, um, but it will be out uh, May 7th, 7th of mm-hmm. 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, Shelley, thank you so much for a really, really illuminating conversation. And thank you for the, the, the work that you do, because God knows our vets, uh, they need it. Oh, it's absolutely my honor and my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Boy, did I enjoy talking to her. I want her to be my psychiatrist. <laughs> She's there, there is something so comforting about talking to somebody who has mental health experience, even if they're your therapist or your psychiatrist or not, but just feeling during that conversation like you're in the hands of somebody who knows what the fuck is going on. Because mental and emotional struggles are so complex sometimes, and it's just exhausting trying to figure out what you need to worry about, what you don't need to worry about, what actions you should be taking, on and on. And uh, speaking of uh, therapists, our sponsor for today is BetterHelp.com. If you have never tried online therapy, give it a shot. It's, It's, I'm a huge fan of it. Um, I've been doing it for a couple of years, and uh, I have a therapist who truly, truly cares, and she'll send me links during the week, uh, of TED Talks, you know, asking questions uh, about, you know, have you been mindful about this? How is uh, the eating sugar late at night going? Stuff like that. It's... Uh, it's it's cool. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental part so they uh, know that you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you and you need to be over 18. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? 
When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's get to some loves. This is filled out by Ashley, and she writes, I love walking out onto my balcony and seeing my, quote, porch pal, Daisy May, the ESA dog, looking back at me from her balcony next door. A little moment we share where I wave and she wags her tail in response is one of the best things in the world. I love that. This is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by uh, Dave M. He writes, I dislike the fact that I'm a man with better breasts than a lot of women I know. I dislike my small penis. I dislike the stretch marks in my fat belly. I dislike the fact that aches and pains just keep getting worse as I get older. Thank you for that, Dave. You know, when I'm playing hockey and there are young guys that make fun of me when I'm stretching in the locker room afterwards, I always say to them, wait till till you get older. Wait till you get older. Alice Thurber says on the love survey, I have eight chickens. And since I've been working from home, looking out my window is much more exciting watching my chickens and dogs playing in the yard, being able to hear their egg-laying songs during the day brings me happiness in these stressful times. I didn't know that uh, chickens sing songs. I guess a lot of chickens are in cover bands, but they, they only sing songs about chicken. I didn't actually, in all seriousness, I didn't know dogs and chickens. I suppose all There's examples of any kind of animals that will play together, but I'd never really pictured a dog and a chicken. I always just imagined if a dog saw a chicken, it would want to kill it. This is from the babysitter survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself, I'm probably overreacting. She identifies as straight, is in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Um, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And it's in relation to what she shares here. Uh, She was being babysat and felt something sexual. I wish I could say how old I was, but weirdly, I have little to no recollection of my childhood. I must have been about four or five because my youngest brother was a baby when the sitter was hired and she didn't last very long. I remember at this age, my mother used to shower me because I was too lazy or too young to do it on my own. 
So one day, my parents were going out, and my mother, before leaving that day, told me that if I wanted to shower, I had to do it on my own. She told me not to ask the sitter to help me, and when I asked why, she said, because I was a big girl. Why wouldn't your mother apply that to you showering by yourself when she was around? I don't know. That's a that's a red flag for me. So obviously when they left, I asked the sitter if she could help me bathe, and she did. I don't remember much, but I remember instead of giving me a bath, she turned the shower on. I only remember the sensations. I can't picture anything visual, but I can remember she had very long fingernails because she touched my genitalia. I don't really know if that was abuse uh, because she was bathing me, but I remember after telling her that my vagina really hurt and burned and she told me it was probably because of the soap not being well removed i know this is disgusting but till this day 20 years old when i shower i try and not wash the soap away properly down there to see if i feel something i still haven't felt that sensation again so i don't know she was later fired for mistreating my sister who must have been six or seven at the time she would call her names and scream at her i didn't Excuse me, I didn't tell anyone and I don't remember what I thought or how I felt. I don't know if it affected me. I just know that I started masturbating at a very young age. But I had so much embarrassment over it, I can't think of an exact age. Probably by the age of eight, I was already masturbating. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I feel sadness because I will never know. And if I did, my mother told me not to ask her to shower me. Uh, Do you feel any damage was done? I really don't know. Have your experiences influenced how you view your children being babysat? I'm not a parent, but I hope if I have kids that my mother will be there to help me with them and babysit them. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Oh, and she is sending some love from, uh, from South America. Thank you for that. Uh, Thank you for that, for that survey. And so many people, I think, have that hurdle in recovering where so much stuff is gray and they're just going back and forth on am I making too big of a deal and ultimately I think let's just process it let's just say this is fucking with me and let's forge ahead you know I'm, I'm not doing this to bring a court case against somebody I'm doing this so I can let all of these emotions out that I've been holding in, especially the shame. Uh, Savannah shares some loves. She writes, The comfort and peacefulness of feeling my partner's chest rise and fall while, while he sleeps. Folding warm laundry while listening to murder podcasts. I've got to assume that she's cleaning blood out of her clothes. Uh, and deep cleaning the fridge. I hate throwing out food, but the purge is satisfying. Oh, those are great. I just did that with my fridge the other night. And it's like there's always some condiment that you're like, where the fuck did this come from? When did when did I ever use you know mustard with uh, chickpeas? This is from the body shame survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Chubster. And he writes Uh, what he likes or dislikes about his body. I like my calves. Growing up morbidly obese really toned the fuck out of my legs, so when I ended up losing 100 pounds, the muscles really popped. 
I hate my gut. I have lots of excess skin from obesity, and my gut is saggy and disgusting. I have hairy man boobs. I often oscillate between losing and gaining weight. It doesn't take much for me to put the pounds back on after losing them. It's a shitty back and forth that I don't ever expect an end to. I suffer from body dysmorphia, so it's extra hard to see my body objectively. To me, it looks absolutely terrible. Like a wad of bubblegum dropped in some hair. <laughs> oh. oh, what a sentence. A wad of bubblegum dropped in some hair. Thank you for that, man. I, and I'm sorry that you are suffering with this, but thank you for thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know, metaphor, analogy. Oh. He's also a survivor of covert incest. Uh, he writes, something I always knew but didn't have words for. And I was able to find books and resources from the podcast and they've been invaluable. That's I'm so glad that, that you've been able to find some resources for that because it is such a mind fuck. This is from the love survey filled out by Neapolitan22 who writes, I love the sound of my dog's tail pounding against the floor when I reach down to pet him. I love <laughs> the first dog I ever had. Uh, her name was Misty and she was a mostly border collie and she had this really thick tail. <laughs> I remember one time we were on summer vacation and of course the parents all had their, you know, their whiskey sours around the table and she got excited and her tail knocked a full drink off the table. <laughs> oh. I love when I get into a little dancing groove when I play the bass and the power I feel as I move my hands up and down the fretboard. Oh, there is nothing like a good a good bass groove and I never realized how difficult it is to really find a rhythm and notes that takes a song to the next level. So many of the Beatles songs, if you listen listen to them and really focus on the bass and imagine what it would sound like with a different bass, uh, you realize what a genius Paul Paul McCartney was on the bass. I also love that bass sound when it's when it's just really not low like in rap, but like not that low, but it's kind of a I don't know how to do it. It's hard to it's almost like there's there's no sustain to the note. It's very short, but it's you almost feel it uh it's almost like a click, like a really fat round click. I love that. I love having conversations with my best friend while we do something repetitive, like tossing a ball back and forth. We get lost in our excitement over the conversation, and I feel deep comfort in the connection. I love our roaring laughter in between thoughts, thoughts that spill out with such trust. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Uh, some loves shared by the mentally unstable redhead. I love when I can wake up in the morning and feel enjoyment in waking up. It took me a long time to get to that point. It's just the little things to enjoy and to be proud of yourself for making it this far. I love that one. That is such a great example of self-compassion and self-love. And like Dr. Jane was talking about, meeting yourself where you are and uh, 
and being kind to yourself. I mean, we are uniquely positioned to be our own best friends, and yet the way we talk to ourselves, if somebody else did it, we would get a restraining order against them. Uh, this is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Casey. About her depression, she writes, like I'm watching some artsy indie movie about how someone too turns towards suicide about her ADD, like someone is following behind my writing with a whiteout pen. Oh, that is so good. About her anxiety, it feels like I'm missing the point, not like I'm the butt of a joke, but as if I'm indefinitely perplexed by what everyone assumes I should be doing. About her alcoholism and drug addiction, just stick with what's comfortable. You re may remember a time that was better, but what we have now is the top and bottom of a bottle. That will just have to suffice. The happy years are over. About compulsive eating. Why am I waking up at 3 a.m.? My phone didn't ring and I don't have to pee. I'm so sleepy. Oh, a spoonful of peanut butter would do the trick. About her love addiction. Please remind me that there's a reason for me to still be alive. About sex addiction. It feels like I'm so drunk on the juices. All of the oils and the textures just consume me. I want to feel nothing. I guess nothing smells like coconut oil and latex. Um, about health issues. I was having sex and doing a great job when I went into cardiac arrest. My doctor says I need testing to see if I could die any minute. I thought, I can't imagine living knowing that I could die any minute. Then I realized we all do that every day. I'm not having the tests done. About PTSD, that certain shade of purple that causes my vision to iris in. I call it post-mortem purple. About experiencing a sex crime. Those guys who ran a train on me were just kids. And that one kid who touched me was in foster care. And in the parentheses, insert female guilt here. About experiencing racial or cultural bias. I'm a biracial Southern woman. Don't get me started. A snapshot from her life. I was madly in love with my best friend. We spent four years together as innocent 20-somethings that society rejected. He was my world and my safety net. I was his. I let him see all of my pain and my colors. He loved my colors. A year ago, I had to leave him in my peak of positive mental health. I had outgrown my companion. Every bit of me immediately crashed down, and every piece that I had picked up was taken by the wind. I lost control of my drinking, sexcapades, self-awareness, and self-worth. I still don't regret leaving him. If this is me, I want to see it. Wow, that is deep. That is so deep. Thank you for that. And uh, wow, you truly are a seeker. You know, I think it's one of the best things that we can be blessed with is curiosity and a desire to want to have more knowledge about who we are without becoming self-obsessed. There's such a fine line between self-reflection and self-obsession. This is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by Elisa, and she writes, I hate the mere fact of even having a body. Uh, and uh, as far as what uh, gender they identify as, 
she identifies as a woman, but uh, in terms of her sexuality, she writes other, I don't know anymore. I hate the mere fact of even having a body. I don't like anything about it. Maybe that I'm underweight. I do like that, but I hate all my bodily functions. I don't like eating. I don't like bodily fluids. I hate feeling anything in my body. I don't like bodily sensations. I don't want to be in there. There is a part of me that I'd like to get removed, but no doctor would do that. I basically wish that I just had no sexual organ, no vagina, have it cut away, and certainly no penis. I don't like my thighs, upper arms, my ass, and my stomach. I think they're too fat. I'm absolutely disgusted by my backside. Everything about it is horrible. I like that my body can do things. Knit, read, sew, walk, play the violin, stuff like that. Thank you for that. And you might find some healing by combining some of those issues and writing a song called I'm Absolutely Disgusted by My Backside and then play it on violin in front of everybody you went to grade school with. Just a thought. I'm not a therapist, but I do have some really great ideas. But seriously, thank you for that. That was uh, that was a really deep survey. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself My Brother Fucked Me Up Literally. She identifies as straight, is in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment and writes, however, I never saw it as dysfunctional until I was in college. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Yes, and I never reported it. I was sexually abused by my older brother when I was five or six years old. My brother would abuse my sister and I when he was babysitting. I do not remember my sister ever being involved, but recently my parents told me that he abused my older sister a few times but got bored with her because she gave in to his demands, quote, too easily. Side info, my older sister is three years older than me and is special needs. She has the intelligence of a 10-year-old. I became my brother's primary focus because I would resist and he would have to manipulate me into touching, licking, or sucking him. I am more angry at my parents because when my brother confessed to them what he did, uh, what what he did, my parents did nothing. They took me to Ruby Tuesdays and asked me if the events he told them about had happened. And that's really why Ruby Tuesdays was founded. It was a, a place for people to verify incest. Uh, I, I hope you don't think that I'm I am mocking you or minimizing your survey. Sometimes I just get uncomfortable with pain and have to make a stupid joke. My dad says that he called our church's counseling services to see how he should handle the situation. And they said that as, by the way, calling the church to see how you should handle childhood sexual abuse is like uh, calling wolves to ask uh, how to fence in chickens. He, uh, He got off on using his mind games. Oh, wait, back up. My brother was, they said, as long as the abuse had stopped, that no further action was required. My, so fucked. 
My brother was never removed from the house, and neither of us ever went to any therapy. I'm most angry at my parents because it wasn't the abuse that they should most be worried about with my brother. It's the fact that the abuse was about manipulation of me. He got off on using his mind games to get me to do things to him. I worry daily about the things he has manipulated and his wife and children to do. Whenever I am at my parents' house and they Skype with him, and I see my five-year-old niece walking around his house in her underwear, I feel absolutely sick inside. After telling my parents about these feelings I was having when I would see my niece on Skype, my dad told me that he is 100% confident that my brother is not a sexual predator. When I told my therapist this, she told me that she bets my dad was also 100% confident that his son would never sexually abuse any of his siblings. She has also been emotionally abused. Uh, To put it in simple terms, I most definitely have, quote, daddy issues. To this day, uh, I have extreme jealousy and trust issues. I also would use men as toys in high school and college. I would take it as a challenge if boys were not interested in me to get them to give me attention. I would tease them until I got their attention. But as soon as I had them, I didn't want them anymore and would ignore them or hook up with someone else to show the person I was leading on that I wasn't interested. I also witnessed witnessed my mom beat the crap out of my dad. I remember sitting on the couch in the living room and turning around to see my mom start hitting my dad. She started slapping and hitting him in the face. Uh, charging towards him as he tried to back away from her. He eventually backed up and hit his head on the corner of a kitchen cabinet. At that moment in my life, I gained so much respect for my father because as my mom was attacking him, he just took it. He never raised a hand at her. He just let her do that to him. And after this incident, he stayed with her. Wow, I don't know if, if I were in that situation that respect would be what I would feel. I would certainly respect that he restrained himself, but I don't know if I would res- respect that he just allowed it to to happen, that, you know, he didn't leave the room or the house or, uh, you know, call 911 or, or, or something, but um, I don't know. And again, I've, I've never been in his shoes, so who am I to, who am I to judge? Um, By the end of the night, they were cuddling on their bed. I remember being so angry at my dad and not understanding. Wow, this is where I gained so much respect for for my father. And then she writes, I remember being so angry at my dad and not understanding how he could love her after she did that to him. That's interesting that she respected him for taking the abuse, but, but then that changed when she saw him being affectionate with her later. Um, This shit's so complicated. I also have a memory, I was a sophomore in high school, of my father coming downstairs to break up a fight between my siblings and I. He was wearing black pajama pants and a white undershirt. He broke up the fight and told us that it was before 10 a.m. on a Saturday and we should know that Saturday mornings are him and my mom's, quote, sleep-in time. I don't remember anything else he said because all I could think about at that moment was how my dad had a fully erect boner that he didn't even try to hide. I assume him and my mom were having sex before he came down. Growing up, my dad would always flirt with women and comment uh, on how they looked. 
He would tell my mom that he wasn't hitting on these women. He just noticed those things because he worked in beauty care. To his defense, he did work in beauty care. I don't know. I don't think that's that's an excuse for saying that kind of stuff in front of your uh, your wife and your daughter. His job was and still is to find people who make counterfeits of his company's products and arrest them. See all my daddy issues. Even though I know my father's behavior was inappropriate, I still feel a need to defend him, which is so normal. It is so normal. You know, like uh, we talked about in this interview with Dr. Jane, that there's a part of our brain that wants to minimize it, that we had to do that to survive, because otherwise, what are we going to do? Move out of the house at eight? Any positive experiences with the abusers? I played competition soccer growing up, and my dad would come to all of my practices, games, and take me to all my tournaments. Growing up, I always felt like my dad was my best friend. I could tell him anything. After years of therapy, I'm finally beginning to understand that my dad was very emotionally abusive and manipulative. My dad is a very smooth talker. Everyone who meets my dad is immediately charmed by him. He was always flirting with women. However, if my mom ever mentioned the name of another man, my dad would get ridiculously jealous and go into an emotional funk. Everyone would walk on eggshells around him for days. Now that I'm an adult, I have a much much better relationship with my mom, although I'm still scared of her. When I was growing up, I always wanted to hang out with my older brother and his friends. I feel like in some sick way, I missed his attention after the abuse stopped. Darkest thoughts. I often imagine beating the crap out of people. I want to grab their hair and bash their heads onto the ground. I want to hook up with a girl. I mostly want to play with her boobs. I love looking at boobs and would love to get a boob job. I'm a teacher and have had dreams about hooking up with some of my students. I would never do anything to jeopardize my job, but I find myself being turned on seeing the student the next day and having to stop myself from flirting with them. The feelings usually go away within the next few days, but then I'll dream about another student. Please tell me this has happened to other teachers. I'm sure it has. Um, I think these dreams are a continuation of what I did in high school to boys. That, that makes sense. I don't want to actually hook up with my students. I just want them to think I'm sexy. In general, I don't want people to see me as pretty. I want them to sexualize me. I want them to stare at my boobs and my ass. My self-worth depends on how sexy people see me as. Recently, I gained a bunch of weight after having a child. I am completely and utterly disgusted with myself. All I can see when I look in the mirror are my disproportional boobs, my ass covered in cellulite, and my disgusting stretch mark covered flabby stomach. Darkest secrets. I have dreams all the time where I beat the crap out of my husband after I witness him cheating on me or telling me he doesn't want to be with me anymore. In the dreams, I attack him the same way my mom attacked my dad that one day in the kitchen. One day when I was around 10, I was home alone. I looked at porn on the computer. I saw the computer's history and conf- my dad saw the computer's history and confronted me about it. I said it wasn't me. The only other person to stop by our house during the time I was alone was my brother's friend. He came into our house to borrow something from my brother. He came in, got what he needed, and left. To this day, my parents still think that it was my brother's friend who looked at the porn. I think about all the ways I can harm and kill myself. I always assumed this was normal. My therapist assured me that it is not. When I am sexually aroused, I I think it is normal too when we're stressed out, 
to imagine, you know, to think, to have brief serious suicidal ideation. But I, th- I think for it to be plaguing us, um, yeah, I would say that that is, that is not. When I'm sexually aroused, I love pain. I love being spanked, choked, and I especially love when people give me, quote, Indian burns on my arms. Uh, I really apologize referring to it as an Indian burn. I do not know what the real PC term for it. It's when someone twists your arm skin in different directions. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, girl on girl. Like, I want to watch porn with my husband. I want him to touch himself while watching porn. I love seeing him turned on. I would love to pleasure a virgin. I want to show them how good I am at what I do and for them to become obsessed with me. I want everyone to see me as sexy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am fucked up. I have depression, anxiety, ADD, jealousy, trust issues, binge eating disorder, childhood sexual trauma, adolescent sexual trauma, body dysmorphic disorder. I have two adopted siblings who my dad frequently refers to as his, quote, black children. In public, he would say, where are my black children? It was as if he really wanted people to know that he was cool because he has two black children. That is so fucked up. That is so fucked up. What if anything you wish for to lose weight? Have you shared these things with others? My mom knows we're both fat. How do you feel after writing these things down? Emotionally drained, but it feels really good to finally write it down. I read all my answers out loud to my husband and it felt so good for him to hear exactly what is going on in my mind. That is so great that you did that. That is such an opportunity for you guys to grow closer together. Man. That must have been scary. That must have been scary. Wow, that was, that was, thank you for going so deep on that one. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by dogs, cats, witches, and bats. Um, And she identifies as a trans woman. I have complex PTSD and recently experienced a traumatic event. Yeah, I know, not a happy moment, bear with me, which reignited a lot of things emailed my psychologist, told them they agreed to a video chat, set up a time, and I got ready. My mother was making too much noise, vacuuming and such. I texted my girlfriend. She said, come over here, do the video chat, hang out for a bit, then go back. I went over, shaking and nervous, crying. My girlfriend's cats came up to me, purred and meowed. She hugged me, made me coffee. The cat made coffee. I had the video chat with a cat on each of our laps, coffee and my girlfriend. We talked for close to an hour, an hour, another, made another appointment, and afterwards I looked over to my girlfriend and said, you make all the debilitating, crippling trauma worth it. I've never felt so in love, so safe, so cared for. We ordered food. I fed her cats, watched shows. I fell asleep for 17 hours on her couch, woke up to one of her cats curled up next to me. The best part? I found out later that she'd texted my mom saying that I'd be spending the night, and she had completely eliminated all items, objects that relate to my sexual trauma from her house altogether. I cried again and hugged her for a whole five minutes. I fucking love you, Courtney. Wow, thank you for that. 
She really sounds like a, a great a great companion. There is nothing like having people in your life that you can collapse in front of. And when they respond in a way that even goes above and beyond you know, the minimum we were hoping for, it's such an amazing feeling. And it's also a great feeling sometimes getting to be the person that is helping the person collapsing. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed our episode this week. And uh, boy, I, I definitely want to get Dr. Jane back on the on the podcast. Um, thank you to everybody that has been filling out the survey. Thank you to the people who are still hanging in as Patreon donors. I really, really appreciate it. And to anybody considering supporting the show, you can do it through um, a one-time donation at PayPal or a recurring monthly donation and occasionally qualify for things that I raffle off like cutting boards I make and stuff like that at uh, patreon.com. And the links to all that stuff are uh, on the website. But um, yeah, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.